HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome, everyone, to The Line. It's Tuesday. Good morning. It's raining in Bushwick, and I've got a great guest here. Before I get started, I wanted to talk a little bit about Samisa Restaurant. We just signed up to be a sanctuary restaurant. If you're not familiar with what that is, it essentially means that uh, we are announcing to everyone that there is a seat at the table for everyone in our restaurant. If you work at a restaurant or you own a restaurant... um, it's worth going to rocunited.org and checking it out and becoming a sanctuary restaurant. I think it says a lot about the community that we live and that we work in and supporting all of the people that attend our restaurants and also all the people that work alongside us at those restaurants. I'm happy to welcome Aisha Nerjaya to the show. She is the executive chef of 100 Acres in Soho. It's a a Vicki Freeman and Mark Meyer restaurant. You have probably heard of many of their restaurants along with 100 Acres. She is born and raised in Brooklyn, and she's worked all over. She's worked at Avoce. She worked for Lydia Bastianich, and we're going to talk all about her use of and love of Mediterranean flavors. So I think there's going to be a lot for us to talk about since that's sort of the spice the spice world that I like to play with as well. Aisha, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I want to start at the beginning. Your father is Indonesian and your mother is Italian. Very true. I would love to hear a little bit about your experience with growing up with them in Brooklyn and uh, how did those cultures meld together to help shape who you were as a kid? Sure. So um, my parents actually met in a restaurant my mother was from downtown Brooklyn, and my dad was a chef at a restaurant on Atlantic Avenue. Uh, the 
adjoining restaurant to where Red Gravy was, which is a restaurant that I was previously at before 100 Acres. Mm -hmm. And my mother was on a tennis team, and her partner was my dad's friend. And after practice, they went there, and so on and so forth. And then there was a marriage. And what was the name of the restaurant? I don't remember it, to be honest with you. So what it was an do you remember? What, it was Indonesian. It was an Indonesian restaurant. And my mother is second generation Italian. So Atlantic Avenue was basically, which I'm sure that we'll talk about, but like my child, that was my first really love of Mediterranean food. But growing up in my house, I guess it was like we would eat Italian for four months and then Indonesian for four months. <laughs> After my dad left that restaurant, he worked on a merchant marine ship that transported liquid natural gas from America to Asian countries. So he was home for four months and away for four months. So when he was home, he got to control the kitchen? It was nonstop. Curries, rice, fishball, eyeball soup, like way out there things and really delicious stuff. And when you say Atlantic Avenue, it's huge. Can you give us a little quadrants of, of where course. we're talking about? About. So my grandmother, my grand, my mother grew up on Strong Place, and so we're talking about Atlantic Avenue, probably between Henry and Bourne Place at the at the very far end of where we used to walk. So pretty much uh, down by the water where Borum Hill is and Cobble Hill area, exactly is Cobble Hill. Okay, and so when they did these kind of quarter season <laughs> swaps, whatever you want right. to call it, mom won a quarter of the year. Um, was your mom? always avidly in the kitchen was it more her mom that did the cooking how involved were you in the process so i was both i was both mostly involved in the fork and knife end aspect of it (laughs) to be quite honest i would watch a lot but I, i really can't tell you that i have that heartfelt like apron string childhood memories of assisting I have them of eating, mm-hmm. and I think that quarterly kind of eating of the, you know, going from oregano to basil, then to like turmeric and uh, coriander, which is what gave me not only my love of spices, but also my iron stomach, I think. And so is there one that you prefer over the other? Is there one that you feel like is really deeply in your bones more than the other? No. That's the honest truth. I mean, I've cooked and I'm sure you'll go over my resume and all the places. Italian has always been at the forefront of my profession. And of course, it's half of me. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's not that I, I always enjoyed eating Indonesian food, but unfortunately, my dad passed away and I wasn't really able to, at that point, really immerse myself in, I mostly watched what he was doing and I kind of understood the spices that he was using and how he was melding them in his flavors. But for me to whip up an Italian dish, uh, uh, Indonesian dish for you right now, probably wouldn't happen. My mother, on the other hand, still does. She cooks a lot of Indonesian food. Not a lot anymore, but if we ask her to make something, she'll definitely whip it up. Was there a specific Indonesian dish from your childhood that really stands, that really kind of comes through as sort of the quintessential dish that your dad prepared? I think his soups were just so incredible. It wasn't only just one. It was like these subtle broths that would have like these big bones in them. Not like ramen style at all, but more like fish bones or meat or Either or, okay. to be quite honest with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, he would use whole fish in his broth or mostly heads or like – it was just – he was like a magician. I think my first food memory of my dad was in the kitchen watching him like flip an omelet. It was like something I've never – I had never seen before, like so prolific in a way. The egg went up, went back in the pan. I didn't even want to eat it. I was like, oh my god, this is the dad best thing ever. Dad got fancy for his daughter. He and, did. And so – when you're growing up on Atlantic Avenue, it is a rich 
blending of all these different cultures, a lot of first generation, second generation. Did you used to walk up and down Atlantic and hit all those different style restaurants? I did. So my grandmother and I used to walk from Strong Place, which was probably about six blocks to Atlantic Avenue. And she'd hold my hand and we'd go into every store. And the first thing that, that hit me was probably the smell sensor. It's like, wow, this, there's something I couldn't now. I could put my finger on what those tastes and, and those smells were. But then I was just like, this is so different from what I was used to. And I think that she loved it because she grew up there. She was born in 1921, basically in that home. And that was kind of like their vacation, if you will. They'd walk six blocks and then would be a new culture with different food that they'd never experienced before. And I guess her love from it kind of transferred to mine. Was Sahadi's around at that time? 100%. And so I assume that there were a lot more places that were similar to Sahadi's that have unfortunately closed, right? right. Like there So used right to now, be- as you know it now, it's a little different than when I remember it. It was a lot of mom and pop stores, of course, and mm. really small spaces. Those um, forever memory pictures of those spice pyramids were still, there's a store across the street from Sahadi's, which is called Oriental, yeah. and they still do it. It's not so in a, in a perfect pyramid, but selling spices in bulk and dried beans like fava beans. I know that there's the Sunday supper Italian tradition. I would love for you to talk about that in a sec if your family did a whole, you know, Sunday spread for the whole family. But is there anything sort of, uh, are there similarities in Indonesian culture? Is there a specific meal during the week, uh, a Friday night meal, like in Jewish culture or something like that, that your family would come together for? So it was really a Sunday meal as well. Okay. It was, or Saturday night, I should say. What happened was when my dad came here, there was a very small group of Indonesian people, and uh, they were basically like extensions of family, third and second cousins, and they would basically pull money from their check and give it to like one person. And then every month someone would host this family dinner for all of the Indonesian families and their children. There was probably about 13 families in whole. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it was one specific dish, but I remember that being like so fun. There was like these I love that egg concept, roll, that like, everyone, like lumpia style egg yeah. roll. And everybody would sit down and eat at this table. It was like, you know, the adult table and the kid table. But I remember my, my parents hosting it. My dad would be like up at the wee hours of the morning making some kind of sauces. My mother would be making her satay with the peanut sauce. That was like her thing. And krupuk frying, rice going. I think the similarities mostly is to love a family and to share food that way. And just having a time where everyone can relax and come together. It takes a long time to cook. The kids get impatient, but the adults get to sit around and sort of schmooze and exchange news from the neighborhood and everything (laughs) like that. Um, So when you were there on Sunday as you're kind of – as you're growing up and, you know, you're tasting the food and when does food become something of – of great interest to you beyond just kind of taking part in it from a, a meal standpoint? I think my father's worst nightmare was for his daughter to become a chef, to be honest with you. Uh-huh. He felt like, you know, they worked so hard and, and all they wanted me to do was be a lawyer. They, When I was two years old, when I was in second grade, my mother was late to pick me up from the bus stop, which was on the corner of my home, and I walked home and the bus driver told the principal and he said, listen, I know Aisha could walk and talk herself home, but you have to be there. And then at that moment, my mother was like, if you could walk and talk yourself out of anything, then that's going to be your profession. Uh-huh. So I tried to divulge myself in that. I worked in a few law firms and I just always had this connection with food. When I, when I moved out, I was 19 and I used to watch Lydia Bastianich on television. 
And I used to watch her create these meals, which also seemed very magical to me because she has these hands that you want to be hugged by, you know, and she's standing there with her knife and just garlic and olive oil and tomatoes. And all of a sudden, then the next picture, there's this mound of pasta. And I just became entranced in it. And I and part of me was like, I want to cook with this lady one day. And so take us up to that point. What, what happened? What did you do? So I was working at a, uh, so I had eaten at Felidia many a time, uh, always like for a birthday or a special holiday that was like my restaurant. And for a young person, it's a very older type of restaurant. But I, I think it was just my infatuation of, which, of her and the way that she was talking about ingredients. It's one thing to grow up around ingredients, but ha- to have someone, my father never passionately spoke about food. Food wasn't passionately spoken about. It was more passionately cooked and eaten. And when you watched, when I watched her on TV, I was like, my God, this woman loves tomatoes. Or she loved the way that she had like such respect for it. So I was working at a law firm and I remember working on this case. It was a very nice law firm. They paid for your dinner and like you got a car home and I was just not happy. So I went to see my boss and I was like, I just, and he's like, why are you not happy? Like we're doing everything, you know, that we possibly, and I said, I just, I just not feeling it. At the time I got accepted to law school. I was supposed to go in September. And I said, he said to me, take it was a Wednesday. He said, take the weekend off. He said, come back on Monday. You'll feel better. So that night I went home and on a piece of paper, which I still have, I wrote like what people tell you, do what you love to do. And in this order, I wrote music, diamonds and food. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It sounds funny, but I think that's like my, that was my ultimate bucket list. Mm-hmm. So the next day I took the train and went to the New York Gemology School and I walked right in and I said, I'd like to study diamonds. And the woman looked at me like I was crazy. And she's like, it doesn't work that way. You have to study gems and all this stuff. And I was like, that's, that's too long. And then I was like walking around and then I walked into the Institute of Culinary Education and there was a woman there by the name of Linda Simon. And I just told her my story and she said, take a walk. And she just walked me through the school and I had this like feeling and I was like, this is where I need to be. I love that you made that list. Yeah. It seems like you are someone who gets specifically what they want. You go after it. You clearly, you know, you, you went after law school. You decided it wasn't what you wanted, and now you're going after culinary school. Coming from a chef father and a family that has a food culture, how did they feel when you told them that you wanted to go to ICE? Not good. My, I called my mother on the phone with this woman, Linda. My mother is assistant principal in the New York school uh, city system. She has now gotten her doctorate as of two months ago, so we're very proud. Awesome. And uh, education is, you know, was always – I didn't miss a day of school until I got to college, and my mother wasn't, like, not on me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> You're like, wait, my mom's not here? All right, I'm sleeping in today. That's what's going to happen. Exactly. So uh, she, they, she was like, this is a phase. At first, she was like, no, no, no. And I think that I'm also the kind of person that if you say no to, that I'm just going to go out and do it. And she was like, this is just the phase. You know, you're going to work during the day. So I worked from 9 to 5, and then I went to school from 6 to 10. And then I think in your third semester, or they call it module, they make you stage in a restaurant for the day. And mm-hmm. you need to write your experience. So I staged at Felidia. And I was just, just as that magical moment of my dad flipping that omelet, I was in the corner between the dish pit and the pasta line. And I was just watching this silent symphony. There was like one voice. He was telling them what they needed in Italian, like, you know, fire, via, quaranta, due. And then they would just put up these dishes. And there was something so magical about this dance on the line and this thing going on in the kitchen that I just really knew I needed to be a part of. 
what was the task that you were working on? I'm so curious that you came in for your mod- <laughs> what, your your trail. What did they have you doing back there? Uh, peeling carrots. Basically, they told me to stay out of the way. To uh-huh. be quite honest with you, yeah, they were like they did. It wasn't that they wanted me to pick herbs or the way that we well the. When stages come in, I'm like so happy to give them, here's garlic. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. See how much you could peel in an hour. They basically wanted me to stay out of the way. Mm-hmm. It was an older restaurant, so they weren't used to what at that time in 2006, what we are used to now, like people that were wanting to be in the restaurants. The people that worked there were already there at that time at 17 years from the beginning. So it had such an established kitchen culture. They were speaking in Italian. Did you immediately know that that was going to be the place that you absolutely wanted to come back and work? Or did you, did you go somewhere else and then end up coming back around and working there? Without a shadow of a doubt. I went after I graduated from school. I went back there. And I spoke to the, I asked for the chef, and he came out, and he and the sous chef came out, and I said, I'm interested in you know working here. And he was like, we're not hiring anybody. So I was like, okay. Um... Is there any way that I can talk to the chef? He was like, no. So I left. And then I was like walking down the street, and I was like, this doesn't seem right to me. So I came back the next day, and I was like, hi, can I talk to the chef? And they were like, no. And, I was, and so I said to the sous chef, I said, I don't know if you remember me, but I stage here. You know, I just recently graduated from culinary school, and I have to do X amount of hours here, and I'm willing to work for free. And he was like, let me talk to the chef. Comes out, he says, chef says no. I said, okay. So I went back on a Sunday. And the sous chef was here, and he's like, listen, is there something wrong with you? And I was like, yeah, absolutely there is. I said, I'm going to work here. I'm going to work here for free. I'm going to do whatever it needs to, to be done. You have to talk to your chef. So he was like, come, 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 come with me. And he puts me downstairs in the basement, and I started peeling carrots. And I came back the next week, and the chef saw me. And he was like, what are you, you, know, what are you doing here, whatever? So I started speaking Italian with him a little bit, and he was like, girls should be in pastry. And I was like, I'm never going to be in pastry. I'm going to be a chef, a sous chef in this restaurant, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. So he's like, well, start, start mopping. And that's really what happened. And that's how I got into Felidia. That story is crazy on a lot of different levels. First off, people are desperately trying to find cooks these days. They'll take <laughs> anyone. Oh, hey, you got hands? All right, get back there. We'll have you do something. You know, it's very hard to acquire any type of staff, let alone someone who had the hunger and drive. And obviously there was sort of a male chauvinist-dominated kitchen culture going on there. Um, How did you keep your emotions positive, and how did you keep your eye on the prize through a tumultuous stage trail and then an internship when essentially what what they were doing was hazing you, right? They were trying to make it so that they could break you down and and they wanted you to fail, it seems like. Well, before I go on that, I just want to <laughs> go on the record and saying that, A, that was the most important, influential restaurant that I ever worked in. Mm-hmm. That Fortunato was my chef, who was still the chef there, and of Lydia, who I have great respect for and who, in turn, have respected me throughout my career by always sending flowers when opening a restaurant or seeing at events uh, with loving embrace. I think it was a different time. And to be honest with you, I just didn't want to be that girl. And the girl that cried and the girl that couldn't do it. And for me, even though we talk about the hazing and the male-dominant kitchen, I didn't really see it that way. I just needed to prove to them that I can do it. Not that a girl can do it, but that me, Aisha, can do it. And it was the first point in my life that I was able to separate emotion and rationale. Because if you, being passionate, 
people mistake that sometimes by your emotions are leading that your emotions lead that passion. And that is true onto some point, but when you're in a business, especially one like this, and then, which like you said, is very different. Now we're begging people to come work. Um, you have to be able to say to yourself, I want this, I want to do this and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And there's the physical end of it. Um, there's the mental exhaustion and all of that. And the restaurant business then was different. And I'm sure that you've spoken to other chefs that are much older than I am that can tell you, you know, how different it was. And I wanted to work and I wanted to become a chef. And in my mind, I had this sense of this is what you needed to do. And I, after a while, I did prove myself. And there were many accolades to come from that. So now that you're a leader in yes. a kitchen and you have been for quite some time, you've led many restaurants. Uh, I want to know about your own leadership style, maybe not even specifically correlated to that event right. and, you know, the way that, that that occurred, but how do you lead kitchens now? What's what's the way that you deal with young cooks who are uh, maybe not as driven and as focused and as purposeful as you have been throughout your career? I think first and foremost, I try to establish relationships with my cooks. I try to get to know who they are, if they have families and things like that, to make them know that they're not only a worker, but they're a person. And essentially, 100 Acres now is my home. So when I invite you into my home, I want to know a little bit about you, and you want to probably know a little bit about me. So I try to establish those relationships. The second thing that I think is really important, important is accountability. It's to make them understand how important this restaurant and everything is to me, and I expect that of them. And we set standards in the restaurant. But back then, it was, you, you know, and I'm not only talking about Felidia, but in the other restaurants that you worked for, there was no other way. You would never ask for a Friday off. There was no one that wanted to know who you were if you had family. And I could name dozens. I mean, dozens is really putting, making it minimal, uh, important functions that I missed because I had work. There was no like, oh, I need this day off or your life never came first. And I think that in becoming a leader... And this day and age and the way that things are, you have to, and for myself too, you have to do realize that you are a person and then you're a chef. And I think that I try my hardest to, you know, establish those relationships in my kitchen, inspire my cooks to explain to them that this is a difficult job. But if you work hard and you're diligent and you have great respect for food and, you know, strive for consistency, that there's, there's, the world is your oyster. It goes beyond just saying... I expect you to do anything that I would do myself. You have to go that extra mile and say, uh, I understand that you're a complex person and that <laughs> you don't just come in, work here, and then go home and go to sleep. There are other things that occur outside of these four walls. And uh, if you don't give them the opportunity to kind of relay to you who they are, then you probably won't be able to keep them around, right? A hundred percent. And uh, that is a huge problem in New York City restaurants today is simply just retaining great people. I wondered if you could speak a little bit about your experiences in kitchens as you've gone on along um, the way. What have you found is uh, one of the most uh, challenging things beyond just keeping somebody good? What are some challenges that you face today as a chef as you run a restaurant? I think that as the laws change, they make it more stringent for certain things. And, you know, the financial aspect is, is very difficult, you know, when you look over your P&L at the weekly and you say to yourself, my God, like this is what we spend. We still have to cut. Where do you cut? Where do you find, you know, a, a, um, a revenue part of the restaurant that could be 
maintained or, you know, that you could stay consistent at. I find, you know, I find that difficult um, at times. I think that, moreover, you know, staffing has really been an issue as a, as a chef because we work for such a great, great restaurant group where we have direct relationships with our purveyors, with the farmers. Uh, we bring in whole animals for the restaurants. And I think that these are things that cooks should want to strive for to work in restaurants that you can see at firsthand what a whole pig looks like instead of just having pork chops come through your restaurant portions. And I find that it's very... The very minimal people respond to that. And, it, you know, you kind of have to adjust. Am I going off topic? Because I feel like I no, am. No, no, good. no, okay. no. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, do you think that your customers kind of understand the what you're going through in order to do what, you try, what you're trying to accomplish? I mean, you're talking about bringing in a whole animal, respecting the craft, right. working with farms. That has a price point. And that price point has to be passed along to the customer because that's who's going to be paying for right. the no, food. It does. Do you think that there has been, is there an education process at hundred acres? Is there something that, um, Mark and Vicky do in their restaurant group to educate you, the chef, you, uh, your front of house that then can translate to your customers coming there and saying that it's an experience just beyond coming and eating their food and paying for it? Right. 100%. I think that Mark and Vicky, one thing that anyone can say about them is that regardless, they will never sacrifice quality. And they maintain prices as much as they can to make sure that, that the customer doesn't really absorb those spikes in whatever it is. Education is extremely important at 100 Acres, not only for the front of the house, for the managers, but also for the back of the house staff. It's important that they know where the vegetables come from. And we've tried to educate our customers as much as we can without it seeming like it's a lesson. But at the end of the day, we are trying to give hospitality. And sometimes people don't need to know what you go through. They just need to see the end result and hope that they're satisfied and above They want a beautiful plate of food. Yes. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come right back more with Aisha here on the line in just a moment. is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Welcome back to The Line. I'm here with Chef Aisha Nerjaya. She's the executive chef of 100 Acres in Soho. 
Chef, I wanted to ask you about your experiences before you got to 100 Acres. I know that we were talking about working uh, at Felidia. After you left Felidia, where is where was the restaurant that had a deep impact and shaped what you're doing now in the kitchen? I would have to say Avoce. Okay. So working with Missy Robbins at Avoce. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, what that experience was like. Uh, for those that don't know, where, where was that restaurant and what kind of restaurant was it? So there were two Avoces, one in Madison and one in Columbus Circle. I, was the, I worked at the one in Columbus Circle primarily. Um, it was a beast. It was Italian food, regional Italian food, uh, done at a one Michelin star level. We used to do 600 covers a day. And at that point, we thought we had a shortage of cooks, cooks, but to look back at it, it was kind of funny because I think we had 30 cooks in the kitchen at each service. Pastry had three, Garmage had five, and pasta had four, and we had five pasta makers, guys hand-rolling pasta every day. Um, now how many do you have on the line at 100 acres? Four. <laughs> <laughs> when we're doing like 400 for brunch. Um, it's... Uh, Working with Missy and at Avoce just gave me a different perspective. You know, as you grow in food, as you become a chef, you are cooking someone else's food. And you're working in restaurants that have their cultures. And uh, when, I, when I worked at Avoce, it was like eye-opening for me. I'll never forget, I think it was my first uh, time where I sat down with Missy for a review. And... Um, I mean, I got all A's, if you will. And then she, had the, she wrote this word finesse in, in a circle. And she said to me, if there was one thing that I, you know, would say that you needed to improve on, it was your finesse. Well, needless to say, it was nights and nights of not sleeping to, like, go over my, I mean, I looked up finesse on Wikipedia and the old-fashioned, like, Webster's Dictionary. I was like, is she crazy? Like, uh, what am I lacking in finesse? But I think that she was, A, trying to push me, which it worked, but B was, it was there where I really encapsulated my leadership style. You know, in a large kitchen like that, there was a chef de cuisine, there were five sous chefs, and each of us had our own voice, and we were in charge of different things. But I felt that at that time, I was making, like, real connection with the cooks and real connection with the food and explaining to them on, you know, it's one thing to have a job, and it's another thing to be a cook in a restaurant because it's not, it's not something that you clock in and clock out of. Even, you know, when you have a good service, you take that home with you. But when you have a bad service, you take that home with you as well. And I think that when you're, when you're a chef, there's, there's a part of you that needs to focus on the business. But then there's a part of you that has to focus on the people that are working for you. And I think that Avoce really, you know, catapulted where, what kind of chef I wanted to be when it was my turn at bat. I think you really summed it up in the sense that you can't really turn this off. This isn't a... Oh, yeah, I left the office at 7 o'clock last night. Sure was a hard day. It's like you go home and you open up a cookbook or you get an idea or you uh, go to another restaurant and you're always learning and trying to find more information and flavors. When you had the opportunity to be the chef for the first time at at the first restaurant that you were, what was the scariest thing? The first day before you really came in and – put on the whites and said, oh, I'm running the whole show. Right. What was something that, did anything keep you up that night? Anything? <laughs> <laughs> A plethora of things. I think your first thing is that, are you, are you going to make it? You know, and I don't, I don't know if it's a long-term question, but I think it's a short-term question. Like, is what is your vision? 
for what this restaurant being able to be executed. You know, I think that some people don't think of it the way that you were saying, do your guests understand, you know, the education and the product that you're using. People don't understand what it is to be a chef sometimes. Forget, it's like you're, you're cooking this thing that you love, that you think is going to be great, right? This one dish, let's just say it's like a braised lamb dish. So you, now you show it to your sous chefs, and then they show it to the cooks, or you show it to the cooks, and now they're cooking it. And then you have other people that work that station, and they're cooking it, right? And then it goes out, and before it even goes out, you have someone in the front of the house explaining it to a customer, saying this is the lamb, this is whatever, whatever. And so many, so many versions of communication are transpired before the person even eats this dish that you've conceptualized now months ago, and is it going to be great? Are people going to understand, you know, I don't, I don't, I cook very viscerally from the soul. I don't have a lot of fancy garnish. I, the last time I used a tweezer was this morning for my eyebrows. But um, <laughs> I, so it's important that, you know, the rusticity of my cooking comes ac- across like that the dishes are soulful. Like, I think one of the greatest rewards is, you know, I'm in the bowels of the basement where my kitchen is, and I have to go up these, which seems like, I don't know, 2,000 stairs to go up, and I, and I watch a customer, and when they take a bite, that they just shake their head. I don't want anybody, my food's never going to knock you off the chair, but if you just make that connection at that moment, then I think that it's all worth it. Is there a specific moment as a chef for you personally that you think you can stop questioning yourself? Is there a level at which you think that you're not? Are you always looking at yourself retrospectively and thinking, uh, I'm not there yet? Or do you feel like to a certain extent with your food and with your style uh, that at 100 acres you've sort of fully arrived? Um, I live by the mantra that I'm always a teacher and a student. So I'm, I'm not fully arrived. Maybe my personality is fully arrived. But um, when it comes to food and, the, and, the, and it's an, always a learning process, even like your leadership style, sometimes you have cooks that have different personalities. You have to be able to deal with them on different instances. And be malleable. And yeah, and it's difficult at times. with a lot of different people that come at you in a different way. Right. And it's the same thing with ingredients. You know, we've all seen you know, pork belly. But what could you, what could I do to it that can lend my, you know, Middle Eastern, Mediterranean flavors to it to say like, wow, this is what we're doing in Hundred Acres that's different than, you know, the restaurant down the block. I want to talk about those Middle Eastern, Mediterranean <laughs> flavors. Those are words that are quite large and almost all-encompassing to a certain extent and uh, very popular flavors that are being used across restaurants that maybe five years ago you wouldn't think that you'd see za'atar on a menu or uh, the usage of preserved lemons in places that you that you wouldn't see them. Uh, where do you like to travel when you go overseas? Where is somewhere that you've been really inspired by lately? And also, what are a couple things that you use really often that you just absolutely cannot cook without that's a great question um i like to travel as much as i can and i and in the month of january i had the opportunity to go to nashville and um i went to new orleans and i think that when you come from these places you're always able to take a little bit away from it and maybe not specifically to the cuisine that you're doing but it could be a technique or a flavor that you uh have experienced I think that one of my influential travels that really stands out to me now that I'm doing this type of food was probably I went to Morocco two and a half years ago, and it was just a really incredible experience. Um, the culture, the cuisine, 
And at that time, I had an opportunity to cook in someone's home for a few days. And I think that's the real part that kind of, you know, blew my mind. Going back to what the ingredients is, I can only say to you that I'm probably a temperamental kind of person. One day I love this, and the next day I hate it, and I'll, and I'll move forward from it. But um, preserved lemon is an interesting flavor that I think that lends itself to many, many recipes. And the one thing that I learned when I was in Morocco, because prior to this, when I was using preserved lemon at home, A, I probably bought it from a store, and B was I always used just the skin and never the inside. So this... This mother of this guy that I that I knew in Morocco took me into her home, and they were cooking on basically like a an, a burner on the ground on the floor of their apartment with a big pot on there, and she was gas. It was propane. Okay, and she was teaching me how to make. Um, uh, it was like this vegetable dish, and I had saw this jar, and it was like this yellow puree. And I like obviously there was such a language barrier. Like she would hold up something, show me how to cut it, and I would just try to emulate that. And it was like she had this very very dull paring knife, but she was whipping up meals for like thirty people with it. And this one was like a turquoise tub that you probably I don't hope that she didn't, but like a foot soaker kind of looking thing. Like they weren't. She wasn't going to a culinary school. Like there was no William Sonoma there. Yeah, she didn't she have a twenty it. piece knife set. <laughs> she did not. She did not. And. Um, she showed me that the outside of the preserved lemon they use as garnish and the inside that they puree and that's their salt component in dishes. So I found that like extremely interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I use that in the restaurant at 100 Acres. I mean, we have cases and cases of preserved lemons ready to go. So you add a scoop of that in order to give it sort of the salty, acidic quality that you need. Yeah, in I finished like uh, one of my fish. I have like a fish tagine on the menu right now. Mm-hmm. And I just at the very end, like we finish it with it while it's right before it's going to plate. And it gives us like this aromatic thing to it. And we don't add any salt to the dish while it's cooking. We may season the fish that's seared on it. But that the salinity travels through that preserved lemon puree. Is there one other thing that today you're really loving? Right. I know day to day you don't love everything. Um, spice wise, we're talking, right? Yeah. I think turmeric. Mm-hmm. Turmeric's got to be one of my faves. Is there something on the menu right now that's that's a really a beautiful vehicle for turmeric? It's actually one of the key components in my chicken shawarma mm-hmm. that I have to say at 100 Acres I have many dishes and they kind of all sell pretty evenly, which makes me really happy because it doesn't make me feel like I, yeah. you know, swung and a miss on one and I'm hitting home runs on the other. That being said, I just recently put uh, chicken shawarma skewers on the menu at the lunch. I have it like legitimately from a rotisserie, but it's uh, horizontal mm-hmm. and like we shave the chicken off and the whole nine. But for dinner, we made it into skewers. And last weekend, I mean, I think we sold over 150 of them. And turmeric really plays a, a big part of it. One, the color. It's, it's brilliant. color, yeah. But two, it has this acidity to it that not all spices do, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, I love the way that turmeric has that tang that kind of gathers in the back of your throat, and people that aren't familiar with it don't really know what's going on because it's not a spice that's permeated into American culture yet, really, in the same way that lots of other spices are. You find them at every single grocery store. You can find turmeric, obviously, at Whole Foods, but I think people just walk right past it. I don't think they necessarily know how to use it or or what it is. Uh, What about Indonesia? Were you ever able to travel there? So I was, but I was very small. I think I was five. Um, I don't have – I don't – 
visually I don't have many memories of it, but we have pictures and stories, of course. But unfortunately, I haven't been back to travel since. Hopefully you'll make it back. I want to jump back to what you said about the even sales of things on your menu, which is a wonderful thing to kind of be able to gauge what's working and what's not working. And earlier you had spoken a little bit about P&L, profit and loss. Can you speak a little bit about what the job of a chef is, which goes beyond just conceptualizing dishes and training staff and supervising ordering and tasting what's all the other things that you do that are requirements of the job that uh and it do you love them or do you hate them right well we also order toilet paper for the restaurant so that's <laughs> super important i think it's a growing pot process i think your first time uh when you're a chef and that you have to embrace the numbers you're you don't understand that you know, there is that balance between creating a dish, as you said, and then what to charge for it, and is it working? I think that in your career, in order for you to push yourself and be able to get to the next level, whether that is, you know, to the executive level or to open your own spot, if you're not looking at the numbers and crunching those, how would you ever know if you're going to be successful? How do you know what your profit and your losses are and what's working? So I think that I've embraced it now. Um, it's not putting in my invoices. It's not my favorite thing to do. But being able to stay at a consistent food cost or um, being able to see where we could have saved money, it, it kind of is like a kind of little personal challenge for yourself. It feels like a victory, right? Absolutely. It is a part of the job that uh, people don't necessarily know is uh, vitally important. I mean, you can get people in the door and it can taste really good, but if you're paying 25 bucks for a dish and you're selling it for 21 that dish can't stay on the menu any, it's anymore true. and that's uh that's a that's a difficult part of the job to kind of uh reconcile the fact that something that you absolutely may love and that your customers may love in its current incarnation on the menu it might not be working right. in a way that the flavors could be working mm -hmm. and your staff might say it's one of, it's my favorite thing um i want to know besides being in the kitchen what do you love to do so I stood true to my bucket list. I love diamonds. So they're all, I don't know. You, if study, you study gems or you buy gems? No, I get them bought for me. <laughs> I'm joking. I buy some, but I definitely uh, have got some lavish gifts over the years. And now I'm trying to divulge myself into DJing, believe it or not. I bought my, I got as a gift a nice little starter kit. Um, but I, I just, it's time consuming. Like you spin, you're spinning I'm vinyl? I'm trying to spin. I'm wow. trying to spin. I'm trying to spin. And... When do you possibly – you do that, what, one hour a week? When yeah, you're... <laughs> I try. It's like exercising. You know, you yeah. really have to. Uh, yeah. I'd much rather spin than exercise. Um, so I have these little turntables and my little Mac, and I've been downloading songs, and I'm practicing meshing one the same song into the other. Um, I'm, right now, I'm just self-taught. I just bought some online classes. What kind of stuff do you like to spin, or do you think if you had the opportunity to DJ, what, what, what would you spin? Probably like old-school reggae. Awesome. Not like Bob Marley, but like Limb by Limb, like Shabba Ranks, like the late 90s, the things that I would want to listen to. Do you ever build a playlist for the restaurant? Have you ever dipped your toe into that kind of thing? I haven't, but it's funny that you say that because I'm constantly complaining about the music <laughs> in the restaurant. It doesn't quite fit your vibe it specifically. Doesn't, it doesn't. I think we need a little freestyle up in there. Tell everybody where they can find your restaurant. So we're 100 Acres. We're located at 38 McDougal Street between Houston and Prince. Open for lunch. We're open for lunch and dinner every day, and we have open from we're open on brunch for Saturday and Sunday. Wonderful, Chef. Thank you so much for being on the line and sharing some of your stories with us. Everyone, go check out our restaurant and please join us every Tuesday at 11 a.m. here on Heritage Radio for the line.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.